You are listening to the DJI Podcast, a space to listen our online events, conversations and seminars, hosted by the Transitional Justice Institute. Hello everybody. Hi, I was about to say I'm Siobhan, but it's been communicated to you all. And on behalf of the TJI, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Ethan Nolan to give this lecture on the role of courts in considering the rights of children and future generations in the context of climate change. Aoife is Professor of International Human Rights Law and Co-Director of the Human Rights Law Center at the University of Nottingham. She's also many other things. She's Vice President of the Council of Europe's European Committee of Social Rights, which she joined in 2017. She's published extensively in the areas of human rights and constitutional law, particularly in relation to children's rights and economic and social rights. She's currently leading a major three-year international research project on advancing child rights strategic litigation. She's acted as an expert advisor to a wide range of international and national organizations working on human rights issues, including UN special procedures, UN treaty bodies, and the Council of Europe. She's an academic expert member at Doughty Street Chambers, where she co-leads the Children's Rights Group. And her recent work has focused on climate justice and the rights of children and future generations. And in January 2021, she was invited to join the advisory board to the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child on its forthcoming general comment number 26 on children's rights and the environment with a special focus on climate change. So I'm really delighted to welcome Ethan Norman. Thank you very much. Okay, now... You'll have to forgive me. I'm not. Uh, I'm not checking my phone. I am trying to make sure that I don't talk for an hour and twenty-five minutes. So, and to do that, I have to make my phone behave. Right now, it is behaving. But it's a real pleasure to be here, and it's lovely to see so many familiar faces, including, you know, people I work with, people I've taught, um, and obviously, I want to start by saying. Um, Huge thanks to TJI and to Ulster. It's really nice being have, to have the opportunity to be a visiting professor here for the, for the two-year period. Um, and it's particularly nice having Rory. And it's very nice to have the opportunity to work with him again and also to reconnect with Siobhan and Esther and people in the faculty more generally. But so I, where I'm obviously very conscious. Can you hear me? Is this working? Great. I've been t- normally I would wander, but I gather it's not going to work if I wander. Um, I'm very conscious that I'm giving this talk in the context of, you know, we all know what's going on at COP, right? And COP is a big international talking shop. And I will not be talking about COP this evening. And I have a range of reasons, including my, shall we say, rather negative attitude about the, the uh, ability of COP to leverage change. And I think one of the things that I have found uh, heartening as a lawyer, but disturbing as someone who believes in... Uh, responsible government is the way in which when we look at change being leveraged in the climate change context, the courts are playing a huge and frankly disproportionate role. And I just want to mention that setting the scene. Okay. And I think the lecture starts from the really uncontroversial premise, right? I mean, I challenge you to challenge someone to come up with this uncontroversial premise. The children of future generations will bear the burden of environmental decision making decisions made today, right? And however, it is generally recognised, and we hear it more and more often, that these non-voting groups cannot input effectively into decision-making 
around the environment. Okay, so we see the impact, but we also see the exclusion. And responding to something that is coming up more and more in child and youth focused and driven environmental advocacy and, and litigation, I want to focus in on how the position of children and future generations outside democracy can and should shape the court's approach when deciding whether to impose constitutional constraints on democratic decision-making in the environmental protection context. So basically, my concern is what should the courts be doing when they're dealing with democratic decision, majoritarian democratic decision-making that is not paying adequate attention to the rights of children and future generations, okay? And climate change is simply one example of this, but it's a particularly important one given where we're at as a planet. So let me start, and we all know in this room the children and future generations are at the forefront of discussions and efforts around climate justice, okay? And we hear, I mean, I thought of making this my open line and then opening line, and then I saw four different reports in one day that had the same opening line. We, we do know that the climate crisis is a child rights crisis, okay? And the fact that it's being said a lot, in no way, you know, it doesn't detract from the fact that that is the case. And it is a crisis that is already demonstrably devastating the rights of children, and particularly in many parts of the global south. Okay? There's this big, you know, there's a whole talk about protecting the climate for the future. Well, if you live, you know, if you live in, in large, large areas of the global south, whether it be Pakistan, whether it be Mali, you're already experiencing climate change. This is not a future problem. It's a problem in the here and now. And there's also growing understanding we're seeing growing understanding and acknowledgement of the effects of climate change on children and future generations, and as yet unborn uh, generations in the future. Okay? It is more and more part of the framework and the lens through which we're looking at the issue of climate change. And I think in a really strikingly entitled report uh, that UNICEF brought out late last month, entitled The Coldest Year of the Rest of Their Lives, it, report, it, it highlights that one in four children globally are already affected by the climate emergency, and by 2050, virtually every child in every region will face more frequent heat waves, right? So we're in a climate crisis, and it's just going to get worse and more widespread, okay? However, as the Children's Environmental Rights Initiative make clear in their excellent recent joint submission to COP27, all this talk of rights has certainly not translated into effective rights protection in the environmental in, in the environment context and children are frequently forgotten when it comes to developing legislation to you know policies and programs to counteract climate change okay it's all about the faces of children when we're talking about the problem but when it comes to the solution we are not seeing children and future generations and their rights being put front and center and at the same time while we hear more and more about the impact, the disproportionate impact of the crisis, climate crisis on future generations, again, we're seeing very limited evidence, in fact, read none, of future generations' rights actually shaping and informing environment-related law, policy-making, resource allocation. Okay? So we're seeing all this talk, but we're seeing a real rights gap here. Okay? And where we see a rights gap in terms of the democratic decision-making processes, it is unsurprising that we see more and more people turning to the courts to try to fill that gap, okay? It mightn't be where people imagine they should be going in the first instance, but it's often where they end up going, okay? 
And recent years, as we know, have seen an explosion in efforts to use courts to advance both children and future generations' rights in the environmental protection context. Okay? And in my work, I'm interested in constitutional rights. And we've seen you know, constitutional cases being taken in jurisdictions such as Colombia, Germany, Canada, Pakistan, the US, South Korea, the Philippines, hugely diverse jurisdictions with hugely diverse legal systems. And all of these cases, all of these cases, in involve litigants who, due to their age or the fact that they're not born, are expressly excluded from direct participation in the form of voting in democratic decision-making processes that determine what is going to happen around environmental protection. Okay? And these groups are thus barred from directly inputting into decision-making that impacts rights enjoyment both in the here and now and rights enjoyment in the future. Okay? And I just want, and you know, that's not really rocket science, right? We all know kids don't vote. We know future generations can't vote, right? Um, however, what I think is very important is that it's not just about being able to directly input into democracy. It's also about children and future generations' lack of ability to ensure indirect influence on democratic decision-making processes, right? There are plenty of underrepresented groups who are still effectively represented in democratic decision making. And with but with regard to children, there's a growing body of literature, and it includes, you know, this has been a research area for me for years, that makes clear the frequent failure of those who do directly participate in democracy, legislators, voters, to effectively represent children's views and interests. Okay, there is a real representation gap. And, you know, on the one hand, it seems obvious, but on the other hand, it's actually received far less attention than you would have expected, children's democratic citizenship or lack thereof. And in brief, it has historically been assumed, and it is still largely assumed, that parents, other adults, legislators will vote, vote to advance children's interests in democracy, right? Thereby ensuring that even though children don't vote, they are virtually or indirectly represented. Okay? Other people do the heavy lifting when it comes to ensuring children's rights are represented. So everything's okay. We don't need to worry. And it's understood, often understood, to, to take place in three ways. Right? First of all, on the basis of shared interests or a communion of interests between children and elected representatives, such as to guarantee virtual representation. Okay? The second is on the basis of shared interests between children and those who vote, being advanced by those who vote to ensure virtual representation of children. Okay, so they're all about shared interests. And third, it's argued that even if you, where you don't have shared interests, well, you know, there's empathy, there's sympathy. We all have these feelings for children and legislator, legislators and voters have these feelings. And so that's enough to ensure those feelings will motivate them to ensure virtual <coughs> representation for children. Okay, now I've limited time and those arguments have been effectively deconstructed elsewhere, but I, I'm just going to give a, a broad overview, right? But in practice, first of all, as you can imagine, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that there are serious issues in terms of assuming shared or a communion of interests between children, legislators, and adults generally in the climate change context, right? It is probably safe enough to assume that in many contexts, parents will in fact act 
to ensure that their own children's interests are represented in the political process. Okay, fair enough. There is evidence that that happens, at least to the extent that parents share the, the, those interests of their children or that the interests, of the, the interests of the children in question don't interfere with other interests that parents might have, separate interests, okay? Right, so it's all about, we'll represent what works for us. It, you know, having brutally summarised quite a lot of quite complicated political science data, but that's what it's about, right? But there is no, beyond, even if we assume that parents represent their own children, there's no reason to assume parents will represent the interests of children generally, or do so effectively. Okay? They may even want to, but they, you know, how do they, they won't necessarily know or understand the interests of children beyond their own immediate circle. And nor can it be assumed that adults will generally represent children. All adults were once children. We hear that all the time. All legislators were once children. And you hear legislators say it. You hear courts say it when they say, actually, we're not interfering here because legislators, they're so down with the kids. I mean, they don't use that language, but that is effectively what they're saying. But they aren't kids anymore. And their childhoods and their futures were not, are not, and will not be impacted by environmental harm in the way that children's are being or will be in the future. Okay, so there is very limited... The scope of shared interest is limited, okay? Simply because of, for temporal reasons, if nothing else, you know, they're not going to live as long. They're not going to experience the impacts. And it has been argued that unless adults gain from pushing, you know, the achievement of children's interests, they may, unless they have something to gain from it, they may not ensure that such interests are voiced or representative or voiced or represented in the legislative or the policy-making process, okay? So there's huge limitations to that model, right? So if you've no benefit, you're not going to do the representation. And we know that there's distinct interests and there's areas of, there's, there's clear difference between adult and child need or child interest when it comes to addressing the climate crisis, how quickly it has to be done, the measures that need to be taken around whether it be adaptation, around mitigation, short-term versus long-term measures. And it all comes down to resources, which we'll come back to later. And even adopting... Right? Even adopting a more optimistic perspective, which I have to say is, is not, not what I generally do, but you know, hey, I can try, I can learn. Although adults may have shared interests with children in the climate change space, they may accord a different priority to those shared interests to children. Okay? So for instance, thinking of very much at the moment, both adults and children have a shared interest in having heated homes, right? And they have an interest in preventing climate change, in fairness. You know, because it will, of course, affect older people, etc. Uh, it affects older people significantly as well. Adults, however, adults, if you look at the, the self-interest argument, adults may well prioritise reduced energy costs and hence ongoing reliance on fossil fuels above more expensive, climate-friendly energy solutions that children who will be living with the impacts of climate change for longer would favour. Okay, and there is clear clear evidence that you see different, you know, that there are different levels of urgency attached to addressing climate change by adults and children. And of course, the cost of living crisis has really challenged us because it has reopened this whole, what are we going to do if there isn't, you know, if we can't access gas from Russia or whatever. And it's clear that decision making, one of the things where we see a real gap in terms of uh, overlapping shared interests, is it's clear that, you know, environmental protection and climate change and global decision-making about environmental protection and climate change in global north countries has a huge impact on current and future enjoyment of children's rights in the global south, okay? But I mean, look at COP, right? 
I mean, it's evidence that the limited willingness, right, leaving COP aside, the limited willingness of legislators and voters in global north states to take steps to address carbon and other emissions so as to reduce climate change makes very clear the limited extent of shared interests or perceived shared interests between democratic decision makers and children most severely affected by climate change in the here and now. And also, it's not, it isn't just about voters who, of course, ultimately incentivize elected representatives and legislators. It's not just about vo uh, voters voting so as to represent the interests of over there or not being very keen on, you know, the children living far away. In the UK, for instance, recent YouGov survey results, and I'm sorry I have to quote it, read it, because it involves numbers and I'll end up making up something ridiculous. Uh, results revealed that while the environment was the second most important issue for voters in the 2019 election, between the ages of 18 and 24, it came fifth and sixth for voters aged 50 to 64 and 65 plus, respectively. But the really important thing about the really important thing about that data is that given in the UK older voters are more likely to turn out than younger voters, and given the growing relative weight of older people in the voting age population, the scope for effective representation of children's and interests in the environment protection context by older voter, voters seems limited at best. Okay? We know they don't prioritise, give it the same priority, but we know more of them vote, and children can't vote. So, you know, it's, we, can see, we can see the limit right there. And furthermore, it, we also see, you know, we talk about empathy and we talk about sympathy, but it's clear that though virtual representation on the basis of those feelings is going to be limited in the same way that it is on, in the context of shared interests. And that is to situations in which children are perceived as non-threatening and where those who empathise and those who sympathise do not have a competing interest in the social goods necessary to vindicate children's rights in relation to environmental protection, okay? And where you don't, you know, and such sympathy and empathy really is likely to be overridden in situations where those who are empathising or sympathising have interests that would not be served by acting on that empathy, okay? And so I want us to think again about the contemporary situation. It's easy to imagine a situation where the costs entailed by meaningful mitigation adaptation measures required to ensure rights enjoyment in the future serve to undermine sympathy or empathy on the part of adults whose interests in the here and now also have significant resource implications, right? We are in a time of constraint. We are to we've been told this for, I mean, I'm, I'm using a UK example because we are um, ultimately Westminster, etc. Sets, you know, sets the scene on many things. Um, we've been told we're in a time of constraint, but I tell you, the triple lock pension, they're doing just fine and they vote for it. And as long as, it, and, I, and I don't want to be crude and say it's triple lock pension versus environmental protection because that is not the way it works. And of course there's scope and it shouldn't be reduced to kind of, you know, older people versus younger people. However, they won't touch the triple lock pension but they don't feel, politicians don't feel incentivized to address climate change. And that is to do with the respect of political power and the ability of older people to determine and give effect to or undermine uh, politicians' incumbency interests, their interest in being re-elected. Okay? I sound horribly cynical. I know there are beautiful, beautiful politicians out there, but you know, I'm not a beautiful, beautiful person, so perhaps I just don't see it in others. And I think, you know, and that's for children, right? They're here. Like, we know children. And so, you know, if the prospects for their virtual representation is poor, the prospects for representation of future generations is even poorer, right? 
we're seeing ever greater protection and it's great right i love a good constitution we're seeing ever greater protection of environmental rights in constitutions this is a good thing and there have been increasing efforts to quote uh, carnean to institutionalize representatives for future generations at different levels of governance we've seen ombudsman we've seen commissions we've seen parliamentary committees you know a whole range of efforts and there's a brilliant book that i would totally recommend to everyone uh, edited by um, gonzalez Ricoy and gosseris on institutions for future generations right there's real thinking being done around this okay however and the people writing in that book would be the first to acknowledge this, serious questions remain about the legitimacy and the effectiveness of those efforts, right, to ensure representation of future generations, not least due to the particular challenges that relate to the authorization of electoral and other representatives by future generations. You know, how do we know that future generations consent or authorise? And also, how can future generations hold those alleged representatives to account. I mean, it's very complex. It's, you know, it's not simply a case of goodwill, it's conceptual. And political short-termism, right, whether driven by self-interest, ignorance of the future, or electoral cycles that incentivize focusing on the short-term remain, right? Political short-termism remains a predominant feature of most, if not all, democratic systems, right? Okay? And, and this matters very significantly. There is strong evidence the contemporary liberal democracies, you know, the systems that we hold close to our hearts, are very poorly equipped to deal with intergenerational justice. Okay, it's a point made by Kate. And as a result, the interests of future generations in relation to climate change. And democracy serves both, ultimately, serves both children and future generations very badly in the context of climate change. All right? So that is my premise. And, you know, you can sit back you know, and this is ironic to some degree because, of course, the effective exclusion of children and future generations from democracy, from democratic decision making, is ironic, given, to quote Gash and Tishnor, the increased leveraging of children in democratic politics around child, climate change. We see children and future generations being deployed. Right? Think of the posters. Think of the language in parliamentary debates being deployed as symbols of the sharp end of climate change with efforts being with clear efforts on the part of politicians and others to present child suffering and future child suffering as a catalyst for policy reform. Okay? So they're not involved in democratic decision making, but there's lots of decision making about them or that you know utilizes them or instrumentalizes them one might argue. And I'm not like just to be clear, I my aim today is not in any way to to undermine the really excellent, you know, extraordinary child and youth-led activism that children and young people are carrying out on their own behalves and on behalf of future generations, right? And we've seen it's astonishing in the environmental space. And much of this, but much of this action has, of course, been aimed at lobbying governments, right? And aimed at and democratic decision makers, okay? And there's no question. This discourse, the activities of these young activists, they have absolutely fundamentally affected public discourse around climate change and they've played a key role in politicizing the issue but in some jurisdictions and internationally right that is very clear however it is much less clear the extent to which such activism has impacted concretely on state and intergovernmental climate change policies okay and i think the first person to acknowledge that would be greta thunberg who said i'm not going to the greenwashing event that is cop okay and that's international but it's of course it, you know, it's ultimately about governments making decisions. So I think we have to be quite careful about how 
it's very easy to kind of say, oh, romanticize. And frankly, it's profoundly patronizing the children and young people involved who are deeply concerned about concrete change. It is profoundly, it is very dangerous to overestimate the impact of those activities and change, right? Um, so ultimately, they're at the receiving end of democratic decision-making, but they don't have much talk about it. And you know, you would. And you know, there's a consciousness around this because when we turn to the courts, we're, it's, you know, as I've said already, it is very clear that the, well, the inability of born children and not yet born or already existing future generations and the fact that they are subject, that they are limited from inputting into democratic decision-making, although they'll bear the burden of that decision-making in the longer term, and hence the need for judicial intervention, this is more and more an ever greater theme when we look at argumentation before the courts or advocacy, right? You look at things like our children's trust in the states, they make that argument both in front of the courts and, of course, in their broader advocacy. And you see it everywhere, right? However, despite this increasing you know, increased number of arguments around, um, frequency of arguments, judicial attitudes towards the lack of a political voice for children and future generations, and relatedly judicial understandings of the implications of those groups' location outside democracy for what, for um, how courts should enforce constitutional constraints on the political process. Judicial approaches very, very widely to this, the extent to which they pay any attention to this issue, okay? And on the one hand, we see the March 2021 decision of the German Federal Constitutional Court in Neubauer on carbon emissions. And here, the court held that the German basic law, the, the Constitution, sets limits on the leeway enjoyed in political decision-making process to determine whether environmental protection measures should be taken or not. Okay? So they've been very clear. The Constitution limits democratic decision-making process according to the court in article 20a of the of the con of the basic law the constitution environmental protection is elevated to a matter of constitutional significance for two reasons okay two reasons first because the democratic decision-making pro political democratic political process is organized and i'm quoting more short-term lines based on election cycles placing it at a structural risk of being less responsive to tackling the ecological issues that need to be pursued over the long term, right? So short cycles, right? You know, and very much a reference to political short-termism. Second, and the court explicitly stressed this, because future generations, those who will be most affected, have no voice of their own in shaping the current political agenda. Okay, so everyone who does children's rights or future generations rights is really pleased with Neubauer. It's like, oh, they've totally got it. Um, and in doing so, they place the issue of democratic unenfranchisement, right? So not disenfranchisement. It hasn't been taken away from you. It's unenfranchisement, the absence of an entitlement to vote, to exercise the right to vote, and the lack of political voice of future generations at the heart of its reason, okay? And this was a case where the complaints were predominantly children and young adults. However, interestingly, and this is why, as a children's rights person, I was a bit like, hmm, the court focuses on the rights of future generations and what it terms future loss of freedom. It paid very limited attention to the constitutional rights of children in the here and now. Now, part of that was the way in which the argument was presented, but it was interesting that it was about the future. Okay. That said, its statements about democratic exclusion, political short-termism, etc., very much are relevant to have potential application if you were looking at a, you know, an exclusive born case involving 
you know, living or born children in the environment protection context, okay? But then, so, you know, hats off to Neubauer, right? But then we get to the Norwegian Supreme Court case in Greenpeace, uh, in the Greenpeace Nordic Association Ministry of Petroleum and Energy in December 2020, where we see a very, very different approach, okay? And this case was brought by, amongst other people, a group called Natura Ungdom or Young, Young Friends of the Earth Norway. And this is a membership organisation. Um, you know, and you know, if you want to see effective youth advocacy, my goodness, take a look at Natura Ungdom at the national level. And it's made up of 13 to 25-year-olds. Okay? And the plaintiffs sought to prevent the government from issuing exploratory Arctic drilling permits, right? Highly politicised, controversial resource-related issue in Norwegian society, okay? And they base their arguments on Article 112 of the Norwegian Constitution, which says that, every, and I'm going to quote it, every person has the right to an environment that is conducive to health and to a natural, natural environment whose, product, whose productivity and diversity are maintained. Natural resources should be managed on the basis of comprehensive, right? Natural resources should be managed on the basis of comprehensive long-term considerations which will safeguard this right for future generations as well, right? So that's paragraph one of Article 112, and it's fabulous. Do you know what I mean? Potentially, that's fabulous. However, the court ultimately concluded that I stressed that on the one hand, consideration for the rule of law obviously indicates that the courts should be able to set limits, including for political majority, when it comes to protecting constitutionally established values. Sounds good so far, right? On the other hand, and... Here we get to the nub. In cases regarding fundamental environmental issues, sorry, cases involving fundamental environmental issues often involve political balancing and broader prioritisation. Democratic considerations therefore support such decisions being taken by properly elected bodies and not by the courts. Okay, this will be very familiar to those of us who are doing work around, uh, shall we say, resource-related decision-making in the UK context. And the argument of the, the court ultimately concluded that for the court to set aside a decision of Parliament, Parliament would have to have grossly disregarded, right, that's an incredibly high standard, grossly disregarded its duties to take measures for the implementation of the principles in Article 12, 112. Okay? And in doing so, the court paid no attention to the, issue, to the issue of the location of children and future generations outside democracy. You know, it's all about democratic considerations without in any way engaging with what democracy is what it includes and who it doesn't include. Nor, and it's, nor, did it, nor, did the, nor did it engage the court, engage with the substantive content of either future generations' rights or children's rights, okay? And there were definitely avenues. I mean, when you have Article 112, which explicitly speaks of future generations, there was definitely opportunity. So, so I want to flag that, you know, the courts are great, but actually they're not always great, right? And that's why I'm interested, it's not just a kind of weird esoteric interest in democracy, it's, it's about trying to engage with arguments and make sure the courts reach the decisions you want. And I think, I just want to check time, yeah, is it, hold on, yeah, okay. And I think a final useful example of the diversity of approach on the part of judicial enforcement is a Colombian Supreme Court decision um, from April 2018, the future ministries, future generations and ministry of the environment of others. And this was focused, many of you will have heard of it, on... Uh, preventing deforestation in the Amazon. Uh, government was very keen on continuing deforestation, people affected by it not so much. Okay, and this was a two-teller constitutional action brought by a group of 25 children, adolescents and young adults aged between 7 and 25 years of age. And they were living in cities that were on a list of cities most likely to be affected by climate change. Okay, and here the court directly addressed 
the environmental, the constitutional environmental rights of future generations, which are viewed as based on the first, the ethical duty of the solidarity of the species, and second, the intrinsic value of nature. Okay, so straight up recognizes them. The court found that the deforestation of the Amazon caused by a range of actions, right, and it was very detailed, the, the argumentation, caused, and I quote, in the short, medium, and long term, imminent and serious harm to the children, adolescents, and adults who are bringing this action, and in general to all the inhabitants of the national territory for both present and future generations, right? So it made very clear the interrelationship and the connections between the present and the future. And indeed, they focused on the rights of future generations and children. Uh, groups at the court, you know, really did regard it as very tightly in interrelated, even to the extent of composition. And I think, um, and this was very important, particularly about the ability of the, of the children, the young people, to bring this case on behalf of future generations and their legitimacy in that regard. However, what's interesting is while the complaint, the tutela that had been presented to the court, really focused on the participatory principle, which is an important part of Colombian constitutional law, um, and the constitutional right to participate in matters related to the environment, the court didn't. Despite giving a very progressive decision, it did not focus on the exclusion of children or future generations for democratic decision-making processes as a basis for its decision. Okay, just didn't go there. Um, it did, however, quote an earlier decision in which the Constitutional Court had made clear that the enjoyment, and I quote again, the enjoyment of a healthy, and not a hostile environment, sorry, a healthy environment, though it can become a hostile environment, uh, is recognised as a right to which all people are entitled and who are in turn, in turn are entitled to participate in decisions that may affect the environment and must collaborate in its conservation, right? So there was strong reference. The decision was embedded in a strong jurisprudence around participation. And it's very important to note in this regard that in earlier jurisprudence, the Colombian Constitutional Court had, had stressed that the democratic principle, you know, respect for the majoritarian decision-making, cannot oppose the claim to essential entitlements of a group of the population that is unable to participate in public debate and which as a result doesn't have its own voice in the adoption of political decisions that affect it, right? So they didn't deal with it in this decision, but they have dealt with it elsewhere. And you can see that this is a, this approach, the courts, constitutional court said that about children, but it obviously applies to future generations too, right? So you're seeing a whole range of different perspectives. But they do make clear the different stances that are being taken to courts when considering what role, if any, children's and future generations' exclusion from democracy should play. But I mean, you could just turn back and go, you know, Aoife, we're half an hour in. Why are you focused slash fixated on the democracy point? We are looking at the courts and they are generally unelected, right? Why is it worth focusing on this? Well, actually, it's crucial. And the reason for this is um, there are two key related elements of democratic theory and liberal constitutional theory that are often presented as objections to the enforcement of children and future generations rights whether it be you know in legal argumentation or in judicial decisions and these are the separation of powers doctrine and the counter-majoritarian objection okay now all the lawyers in the room I want you to breathe in and just accept that it might be how you define the separation of powers but I had to do it and I only have a sentence for it right be strong Rory be strong okay so a simple description of the separation of powers is there are three branches of government, right? Legislative, executive, and judicial. And each of these branches has its own discrete functions. And there are numerous understandings and conceptions, and Rory could certainly talk about it, but it's not his lecture, um, and models of separation of powers in practice, right? There's different models in constitutions, there are different models in, you know, as outlined by courts, etc. 
But I think the important thing, the point I want to make, is from the perspective of a narrow, formless conception of the separation of powers that we see deployed in some climate change cases, the, the, the view is that on the part of the courts is the courts should not act to encroach on, become involved in, or even constrain law or policy-making functions of the elected branches of government, right? That's not for them to interfere with. The counter-majoritarian objection, which is, you know, I will explain why they're related in a minute, to judicial review is that in the words of Alexander Bickel, um, when a court invalidates a legislative act or the act of an elected executive of the government, uh, it thwarts the will of representatives of the actual people of the here and now. It exercises control, not on behalf of the prevailing majority, but against it. Okay. So now we know what they are. Maury has had a quiet moment of strength and he's able to, I'm able to continue. Um, but both the, the key thing is, you know why democracy? Both the separation of powers and the counter-majoritarian objection, which are so important in constitutional theory and constitutional practice, are underpinned by specific understandings of the respective roles of the elected branches of government and the courts with regards to enforcing rights. Okay? In particular, right, this is where democracy comes in, they are based on presumptions about the legitimacy and the appropriateness of particular mechanisms, principally majoritarian democratic ones, for the resolution of disagreement about rights. Okay? That's hardwired into them. They also, into many, many conceptions of these. The, the separation of powers and counter-majoritarian also implicitly reflect assumptions about the location of rights bearers vis-a-vis -vis democratic decision-making and the capacity of rights bearers to employ majoritarian democratic mechanisms. So there's a there's a view that actually certain decisions should be done by democratic should be decisions should be made by democratically elected bodies and there's assumptions made about who can input into those democratic processes and hence that hence render those democratic processes legitimate or desirable in terms of being the, the way in which we decide about rights. Okay. Most importantly, though, from the perspective of what I'm talking about, the underlying one of the underlying assumptions is that those decision-making processes entail the effective representation of rights bearers interests in democracy whether through voting or other forms of representation right so these are all so you know you see separation of powers you see the counter-majoritarian objection but it's the assumptions underneath about how democracy works and how democracy ensures effective representation that is why i am fixated on democracy and why i'm fixated with courts paying attention to how democracy actually functions in action and then feeding that back up to how they apply the separation of powers to the counter-majoritarian objection. So, but the thing is, these are assumptions, right? These are assumptions that, you know, about the mechanisms, about democrat, you know, about representation. Um, they, they're assumptions, they're not truths, and it's clear they don't hold, as I've already explained at some great length and will not do again, they do not hold for future generations and children. They don't vote, and as I've already shown, they don't exert meaningful indirect influence on democratic, majoritarian democratic decision-making process. So in short, we can't look, we cannot look at the judicial protection questions without looking at the democracy issue, right? So if we're looking at why, whether the court should intervene to ensure protection of the rights of children and future generations, and we're looking at how, to, how the court should do so, we can't do this without looking at democracy, questions about democracy, how it functions. So what does it mean in practice? So what, I'm what am I arguing? Well, first of all, I'm arguing the courts need to look carefully at the social, political, and economic position of groups whose rights come before them. And where it's clear, 
that those groups aren't direct, don't directly participate or aren't effectively represented in democratic decision-making processes, the courts need to intervene to ensure those rights are secured. Okay? And they should do so even where a, where a particular asserted conception of the separation of powers or the application of the counter-majoritarian objection would suggest the opposite. Ultimately, if you have a situation where courts are right-holder blind, where they don't look at the, at the actual nature and position of right-holders or, or are oblivious to the way in which political inclusion or exclusion operates in terms of law and political processes, courts won't appreciate the importance of the role that judicial enforcement plays with regards to children's rights and future generations' rights. And in doing so, they're going to fail to fulfil their role as courts, to, as guardians of those rights. Okay? And the traditional objections to judicial engagement simply fall away in this particular context with these particular groups, given the nature of the issue and the nature of the issue. So I just want to make one final point here. You can hear you all sighing with relief. Um, and that's to flag that even where courts are prepared to intervene, to secure the rights of children and future generations in the climate change context, where, you know, contrary to the desire of, you know, overriding or, you know, constraining democratic decision-making processes, there are a number of challenges remain. And they might seem technical, but they need resolution if the courts are going to be effective, if they're going to do their job properly. First of all, when we look at the case law more broadly, we can see that in addressing the impact of harm to the environment on both children and future generations, litigation and adjudication have at a wide range of impacts, right? Stay with me on this. This is where one of my slides might have been useful, but I will act it out beautifully. They've looked at both in, both in isolation and tandem. First, the short-term impacts of environmental harm on the rights of born children in the here and now, right? So how climate change is badly affecting children's rights in the here and now. Second of all, they've looked at the longer-term impact of environmental harm and the rights of existing or born children as future adults, right? And this sometimes involves talking about already born or existing future generations. Somehow you become a future generation when you hit 20 or something, right? But that's the, that's the perspective. And third, we see courts looking at the impacts of environmental harms on the rights of unborn future generations, okay? So the Colombian court, for instance, looked at the whole range. You know, it's, it's not, they're not necessarily doing this discreetly. So there's lots of different ways in which claims are brought, and being considered by the courts. And a complicating factor around this is the failure of many constitutions and indeed courts to define precisely what a future generation is for the purpose of constitutional protection, right? We actually, it is often not clear exactly what a future generation is. And that means we don't know who the rights adhere to and we don't know who's entitled to assert those rights, whether on their own or on behalf of others. It isn't clear it isn't uniformly clear the extent to which born children here and now overlap with future generations. For instance, do children qualify for rights on the basis of their membership of the two groups, both as a child and as a already born future generation, or as, you know, and as adults in the future? And it's, it's seriously underexplored in constitutional scholarship. It's seriously underexplored in the intergenerational justice work, you know, which is philosophy, political, predominantly philosophy and political science, and international human rights law doesn't give us guidance either because we're still at a very early stage in talking about future generations there, okay? And this matters because if the courts are going to outline rights and they're going to outline obligations in relation to environmental protection, we have to know who they're talking about, who the rights belong to and what the, who the obligations are owed to, okay? And even when we move past, even when we move past that, we cannot assume that the rights of children focused on the here and now it's, it's clear that the rights of children in the here, focused in the here and now 
Group A, say, will ra may raise different issues with regards to democratic citizenship or representation and judicial review than is the case for the future rights claims of existing children as future adults, right? Or the rights of as unyet born, yet unborn future generations, okay? So for instance, I know, so again, the slide really, I can tell you now would have been a beautiful thing at this point, right? I'm prepared to circulate it afterwards. Um, or perhaps Carl would like to circulate it afterwards. Um, for instance, the extent of, so the extent of virtual representation of future generations on the basis of shared interests with current voters will almost certainly differ, right? I mean, if we're thinking about shared interests, we're thinking about sympathy or compassion, we can assume that those are more likely to the people who are close to us temporarily in, in time than they will be later on, okay? And there's also, that's particularly so when we bring into bring into the fact that obviously none of us knows the future and you know how do we determine the interests okay so this means that when courts look at children's rights so they look at future generations rights they have to carefully explore the the respective political social and economic positions of these groups okay the court can't just ignore this they have to get in down and dirty with the topic around looking at things of representation looking at democratic citizenship looking at the scope of you know legitimacy of democratic decision making and of course it cannot be assumed i've talked a lot about how older people and children's rights might conflict well you know what it cannot be assumed that the interests of children in the here and now of children as future adults and the interests of as for instance as yet unborn future generations are going to be consistent right we cannot assume that that's going to be a beautiful happy place where when the court says do this now for children or for to ensure certain the rights of some groups that it will also work for the rights of other groups. And it's easy to envisage, for instance, a situation where budgetary decisions taken to secure you know, future generations' rights, think adaptation, mitigation, impact negatively in the here and now of born children. Okay, so I want us to think about, I mean, Gronje works on social security. So Gronje works on how often do we hear about sustainable social security systems that mysteriously result in cuts to you know, child benefit or child-specific services, child-specific um, child-specific payments. And it's, you know, these are, these are issues that play out in that context, but they also play out potentially in the climate change context. And finally, you know, there's the issue of indeterminacy. We just, where, where you're talking about the rights of future generations or future enjoyment of rights, even of children who are already born, there's inevitably an, uh, an element of uncertainty at play. Okay? We just don't know. We have the precautionary principle and things like that, but we don't necessarily know. And we need to, there is, that means that there's always going to be an element of not knowing the impacts or the impacts of judicial decision making in the here and now. Okay? And that uncertainty, of course, complicates the balance to be struck by courts when, when trying to balance the rights of children of future generations or indeed dealing with the issue more generally. Okay? But I leave it there. But I mean, these are complications, right? But I just want to finish by saying they're inevitable. Right? consequences of the successful engagement of courts with climate change and other environmental protection issues. So they are to be welcomed. Yes, they're difficult, but you know, guess what? Constitutional law is, judicial review is a complex area, climate change is complex, unsurprising it is here. And this is when, you know, and the present is already delivering on this. The courts are engaging and that's very positive, okay? But it is crucial that as courts move forward with this work, and they will move forward with this work because there are more and more cases being brought, they have to address these complications, these challenges head on, okay? Because leading to the future, when there's already problems built into the jurisprudence that again then impact on decision making around you know, environmental protection, leaving it to the future is going to be to leave it too late. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. <laughs>